And today, I, I want to sort of just kick around this idea of, of thanksgiving. And I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be thankful for each other over these next weeks. And so I, I hope, you know, the theory when we get together on a Sunday like this is that all of us in this room and the people you know that are not in this room, what, what our ultimate hope for these next six to eight weeks is that people are sort of excitedly looking forward to what is in front of them. And to apply that today, that would mean like we're all looking forward to Thanksgiving this week. Because this is truly the official start of the holiday season. And it's interesting, um, our culture, especially in the 11 years I've been in Florida, um, there's a a legitimate two-month run here. I actually think the holidays begin around November 15th, and they end January 15th. It's the place, as far as places I've lived, the holidays seem to sort of extend themselves beyond the normal dates. And by that, I mean the way people think. They're sort of you know, checked out a little more from the normal realities of life as these two months sort of engulf every aspect of our life. And so we have Thanksgiving this week, you know, Christmas coming up, obviously New Year's. These next months, this season, is supposed to be a time of reflection. It's a time of, of rest. You know, we all have to work. None of us get to check out for eight weeks. But the theory is, is we're supposed to try to think a little bit and slow down a little bit, reju- rejuvenate and give thanks, especially this week. And anytime we begin to talk about the holidays, I always mention that this is typically a bittersweet time of year for people. For some of us, maybe you are excitedly looking forward to to this upcoming week. I talked to several of you this morning. Several of you are traveling this week. Several of our people have already traveled. They're excited about what's going on, and they've already begun their holiday, right? That's a good thing for a ton of people. They're very thankful. But for others, they're faced with a a difficult task of of maybe finding something to be thankful for. They look to weeks like this, and there's a little bit of dread in their heart. And for a lot of people, especially if this has been a challenging year for them, this becomes a bit of a reminder of what what we are without. Maybe what you lost this year, a loved one or a cherished one. Maybe for the next eight weeks for some of you or the people in your life, these next weeks illuminate some of the difficulties that, that they're going to be faced. This is going to be the first Thanksgiving, the first Christmas, the first New Year's without something that really matters to you, a person or a place. Especially on a day like today, this is the kickoff. This is where I really want us to be able to, to have a balanced understanding of what it means to celebrate Thanksgiving. And that's why this morning I want to look at some of the reasons There's really a couple of driving ones we'll talk about over these next weeks, but they come from a place in the book of 1 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, and we're going to look at uh, all of this first over the next weeks. I I won't obviously address all of it today, but just sections of it. And the, the reason I want to sort of give you a caveat here about Corinthians is that when we think of being thankful, if you've ever spent any time in the Bible... Um, usually the books of Corinthians are not the place you would want to go. When you read First and Second Corinthians, they are arguably the, the, I say harsh, meaning that that Paul is rude, but, but he's got a tone with the Corinthian church that is far different than how he spoke to, for example, the Ephesian church or the Philippian church, which tended to be a little, a little more healthier and put together. The Corinthian church is sort of like two letters where there's encouragement in it, don't get me wrong, but they're largely letters that are addressing corrective issues, okay? And I'll say this again throughout the course of our time this morning. There's two ways you can look at the book of First and Second Corinthians, the books. A lot of people look at them and they say, yeah, this is when you, when you read these books, you need to know that this is what churches shouldn't do. And there is some truth to that. 
But I actually think it's very important that we understand the historical backdrop of what's going on in First and Second Corinthians. First and Second Corinthians is perhaps the best example we have in the whole Bible of what happens when people are faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are incredibly far from God. And so what happens is, they're about five years in right now at the time of this letter, you, you have a, a whole bunch of things going on because there have been a slew of people who literally like walked out of the pagan temple. They walked out of every aspect of life, believing that they were God. They had all these priority structures in their lives that had nothing to do with the person of Jesus. I'm sorry, Siri just spoke on my phone for some uh, reason. She said she can't find, and then I shut her up immediately. I don't know what she's looking for, but I know what I'm talking about right now, okay? So, uh, and she's muted too. I don't even know what's going on there. So uh, anybody want to counsel her and I afterwards, let me know. So th- th- this is a book that really shows what happens when, when lostness is penetrated. When people who really, really love Jesus, they, they don't exactly fully know what that even means to, 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 to live out. And that's why I think we need to look at these books with a much more optimistic perspective. Because when you reach lostness, and if any of you can think about to the times when you were very far from God, or in the moments of life where you were following Jesus and were very far from God, even though you knew him, that's a hard place to be. And these books, I think, are a great example of something we should be thankful for. And Paul literally thanks God for these people. And that's why his words should resonate with your heart and with my heart if we've ever found ourselves in one of those hard places we just spoke about a few moments ago. They further encourage us, these words, to to remember that we should, as Christians, always have a a reason to be thankful. At least one. At the very least, we have Jesus. But there are other things God encourages us to be thankful for and about. And in this passage... You, I mean, Paul's an object lesson. He is dealing with some hard situations. He's addressing some, some touchy matters with the church, both personally and his own life. This is a hard run for him. And with the Corinthian church, whom he's writing this letter to. And so despite this, despite these difficulties, he manages to open and frame everything he says to these folks from a posture of thanksgiving. And these objects of his thanksgiving, which are applicable to our lives today, are what I really want to look at today and over these next couple of weeks. Through them, he shows us that giving thanks, you know, the reason why I think Corinthians is important is because we tend to want to give thanks when things are good. But the scripture is also replete with the truth that we should be able to give thanks when things are also not very good, to whatever degree that that is. There there is the ability in Jesus to be thankful during challenging times. And in this passage, he reminds us that we, we sort of have to have a, a lens that we see the world through. If you were to look at Corinthians without the lens of the gospel, it looks like a church that had a lot of bad stuff going on in it. But if you were to look at the church of Corinthians through the lens of the gospel, what you realize is it's arguably one of the greatest discipleship projects in the New Testament. This is what happens when the person of Jesus you know, collides head on with the reality of lostness and people begin to make that great journey from not knowing Jesus to actually living for him. And so he gives thanks for this. And there are two things he points out to us in this passage. Only one we'll talk about today, these objects of thanksgiving. One are the people themselves, which we'll talk about. And the second is, uh, is that God, uh, he, he, he gives thanks for the fact, the fact truly that, that God promises to see us through to the end. And so it's, it's sort of great as he's talking to people, really trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. He reminds them of their responsibility in all this, but then encourages them to know God, God will see you through to the end. Meaning like no matter how hard your life is right now, God will see you through to the end. That's not our, our subject for today, but that's what we'll talk about in the weeks that follow. And so today there's one truth I want to share with you. Be thankful today because God has given us each other to support each other in life. 
the, the fact that we have each other is a direct blessing from the fact that God has formed a new family of faith called the church. And so we don't want to forget the authority that we give Thanksgiving under here. But we are brothers and sisters in Jesus, and that is a very important thing. We are family in Christ. So no matter what's going on in your life, there is a family, even beyond our biological families, that we are able to be a part of. And this is largely because of what Jesus has done for us. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6, I'll just read very briefly an aspect of what was just read to us. I always, Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, I always thank my God for you. Remember what I just told you about the Corinthian church? He is regularly thanking God for that group of people because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him, speaking of Jesus, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. That is such an encouraging statement. And the reason is, is because Paul was able to look beyond their faults and failures, which we all have in life, and he was actually able to give thanks for the work Jesus was doing in them. And if you want to learn how to have long-suffering patience, if you want to be on the journey of discipling other men and women in Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, patience is part of what the process requires. And so what it often requires us to do with others and have others do with us, because this is what God does with us, is he can look beyond our temporal or our, our immediate shortcomings because there's a bigger picture in mind in what he's doing. And that's exactly what's happening here. Paul begins this letter by giving thanks, not just for the people, but for the grace of God in Jesus and the people it took root in. Paul begins this letter by giving thanks for God's grace in Jesus and the people of the Corinthian church it had begun to take root in. It's sort of like one big thanksgiving on two sides of a coin. The very people and the very people that Jesus is working in. And here is why this detail is very important to know. Today, um, a couple of us here at Restoration, we went to a training yesterday in Orlando about it's just uh, in the gist of it was sort of how the church continues to remain vibrant and and missional uh, effective in a world that seems to have an increasingly shorter tolerance for the things of God and one of the solutions to this problem I hear it a lot in idealistic circles is people will say you know it's it's very important that if the if the modern church you know the 21st century church wants to be healthy then it has to look exactly like uh, the first century church looked and there's actually a term for this in theology we call this we call this primitive the- theology and what it simply means is people think like the reason the church has, is struggling today, and, and keep in mind the church has had success and struggle in every era of history. This is not a new thing. It's just our time for this thing. What they say is, is if we would just do exactly what was going on in the first century world, then what would happen is, is uh, in some like mystical or, or miraculous way, God would remove every trial and, and hardship. And all the people, there's like people watching movies on the other side of the theater right now, they would just get up and say, like, I hear this voice, and I'm going to walk to the other side of the movie theater and, and go to church. Forget seeing Midway for the fifth time or Frozen 11, whatever's going on over there. I'm going to come over here and listen to Anthony speak. That's what people think happens. But the truth is, that is not usually what happens. And I, I've often people heard people say the only hope for the modern church is that it, it's got to start looking like the ancient church. And I will say there, there is some truth to that if you can actually root the idealism out of that. It sounds really good, but it is really incredibly misinformed, especially if you've read anything about the early church. The early church, what you will see is like once you get past the first two chapters of Acts, it shares with all the struggles and hardships that we, we share today. There's conflict, there's trial, there's, there's great things of God happening simultaneously, while there's, there's people wondering why great things of God aren't happening more quickly. The, the ancient church, just like the modern church, and should Jesus tarry another couple of thousand years? If they're talking about 
the mid-ancient church being us today, they're going to say the same thing. This is, this is the truth of the church in all eras of history. These two sort of poles of, of trying to be faithful for Jesus during difficult times is a normal reality for the Christian in the Bible and in life. And this is especially true of the Corinthian church because it had no shortage of issues. I already alluded to this on the front end of this. This is why Paul's choice to begin this letter by giving thanks for this particular group of people who are seriously missing God's mark in a lot of ways, is such a powerful statement, especially when you understand the historical reality of Corinth and the Corinthian people. Corinth, I mean, if we're going to put it in modern terms, it's what we would call today a very progressive urban center. It is a centrally located city. It is a hub for trade. It's sort of a place for the arts. Culture is going on there. It's a place where success and individualism and power and affluence, those are the, those are the kings of, of that world. That's sort of what everybody is striving for. And as a result, there are lots of life options for people. And consequently, people have a, a myriad of, of pathways that they can choose in life with few, few boundaries. And as a result, it sort of is, historically speaking, an anything-goes kind of culture. And it has, and I, I actually think, some very strong parallels to the modern Western world and, and even our country and our cities today. We're sort of living in the era where everybody thinks that they can do what is right in their own eyes at any given time. And so the city is so well known for this that it, there's actually, a, a, I actually mentioned this many, many years ago, teaching from another aspect of Corinthians, but there was a, an ancient term called like a, a Corinthianizer. It was sort of like a slang term that you would say like, oh yeah, that dude's a Corinthianizer. And the idea was like, that person is really wild and, and crazy. And so it, it's sort of, um, uh, I'll give you a historical example because you know I'm sort of a geek, but like some Vikings, the idea of like a berserker, which we sort of use as this term today to describe somebody that's really like off their rocker and crazy. These were certain warriors that were, they were so just like violently successful on the battlefield that they created a whole new name for them. So it was like an archetypal name to describe a very effective warrior. You have the same idea when it comes to the idea of the Corinthianizer. Corinthianizer. This is a person who, who essentially lives by their own rule at the expense of other people around them, even if they, they could care less about what happens to you as long as they're happy in what they're doing. And this is why it's worth noting that, that I mean, I need you to hear this because I'm going to really say this and then I'm going to directly apply this to us. This is why it's worth noting that Paul doesn't give thanks for a group of perfect religious people here. He does not start out by saying, thank God for how awesome and great you are. He thanks God for them and their journey with Jesus and the fact that Jesus is working in them. Um, he actually gives thanks to a group of very imperfect and flawed people. And I do not want this to sound harsh, but every one of us fits in this category. Every one of us fits in the category of being flawed in some way. Because we believe in the theology of sin, and there's tons of stuff you can listen to online about this, every one of us, to varying degrees, we sit in this same category. Even those of us in Jesus, we are not, we have been freed from the power of sin, but not necessarily the presence of it in our lives. And this is what you're seeing here. We've all been affected by sin in some ways. Some of us will deal with the lingering effects of that for the rest of our lives in very particular or acute areas. But what I want to point out here is that as serious as that is, these are folks who are trying to follow Jesus but are still steeped in sin. What he gives thanks for is what God is doing amongst this group of people. Even with this relational reality, in our own lives, too, I'm not trying to say, like, you're the worst person on earth. I'm just trying to say, until Jesus returns and eradicates sin once and for all, you know, restores creation to the way it was meant to be pre-fall, we are all going to deal with the presence of sin. It is around us. 
It can be in us. We can seek it and desire it. And Paul encourages this group of people to really think in some different ways. He shows us something interesting, that he has this deep and profound love for the people of this church, in large part because of his relational connection to it. So Paul planted this church, as he did all the other churches in the New Testament. And at the time of this letter, this church is about five years old. And as I mentioned, it's already fallen on some hard times. And the irony in this is it's fallen on hard times because it was doing such a great job of reaching people who were really far from God. And so he gives them this letter of instruction to deal with uh, the slew of problems that they were dealing with. And it was keeping some of them from growing as disciples in Jesus. And because the church was so successful at helping people to find Jesus, there was clearly a concern in his mind about that church being able to help new people find Jesus. In other words, you you can't walk both of those roads. You've got to try to dial in to follow Jesus if you're going to make disciples and reach new disciples, the people who who are nowhere near Jesus in their lives right now. And so he's dealing with really crazy stuff. I mean, go ahead today if you just want to search some of these terms on Bible Gateway. Uh, Go ahead and and tool through Corinthians and see the stuff he's dealing with. I'll give you a handful of things going on. Crazy stuff, like um, people are are having fights in the communion lines because they were serving wine. And so you had some people getting up to take communion the way we do here, and other people getting up saying, like, if I don't get in the front of the line, they're going to drink all the wine. i got to get up there and deal with that. And so there's literally fights going on during the communion line. It's never happened here in almost 10 years we serve grape juice. Maybe that's the reason why. I don't know. But the bo- bottom line is like, could you imagine what it would be like if, if on the third Sunday of every month I had to address the fist fights taking place over communion or you wanted more pita bread than the person in front of you, right? So that's one of the things going on here. There's also this culture of retaliation. Um, rather than beginning by uh, the, the, what we call the, the Methane or the Matthew's conflict principle that Jesus teaches us in the book of Matthew, rather than sort of dealing with conflict in a healthy biblical way, there's like a sue happy culture. So people are like slandering each other, and I'm talking about Christians now, and they're like litigating um, themselves out of the kingdom of God. So there's no like go to your brother and try to work it out. There's sort of like dial 1-800, get some cheddar, get a lot of money from your friend and sue them until they are homeless. That's what's going on here. Another thing, right? And there's a slew, I mean predominantly, a slew of unhealthy relationships. Dating relationships, marriage relationships, peer relationships. It's, it's a bit of a relational mess. Several times, Paul even says things, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but he says things like, um, listen, even the people that don't believe in God, like you say you now do, they know this stuff is wrong. He's, he's arguing for the fact that there's sort of like around them folks who have a deeper morality than those who are prescribing to the morality of the, of the kingdom of God. He, he brings up this contrast. And it's kind of interesting. I, I, um, I've done a lot of reading about conflict over the years, and I actually had a whole class, three hours of study in it when I was in school, uh, because relational conflict is pretty much at the root of everything. I mean everything. No matter what's going on, you can look at a war, right? You look at the, the cataclysmic reality of what a global war is. At the beginning of that is conflict between people, and it's usually a small handful of them. And so this is something I've tried to spend a lot of time studying. But I, I can tell you, um, when I was in school, they were not addressing these issues. Like, we never got a class on how to deal with the fight in the communion line, right? These things are almost so outlandish that they don't even make the syllabus on the normal stuff you'll deal with. But despite all this craziness and the fact that the rest of this letter, Paul's going to, without shame, with a lot of grace and firmness, he's going to address every single one of these aspects, areas. Paul still says with the utmost honesty that he thanks God for these very people of that church family. 
And if you're like me, when you read a passage like this, you're probably asking, how does a guy get to the place like this? How can you be ministering and caring for people and, and, and it be very difficult and you can still look at them and love them and, and care for them, even though they might even cause you great pain and heartache? Equally as important, how can you get to the place where, where you can honestly give thanks in those situations? Not just how does Paul do this, but how do, how do we do this? How do we learn to be thankful in situations that cause us great pain and heartache? Well, Scripture teaches us that you, you get to the place, this is a general principle, and I've shared it with you before, the goal in trying to be thankful, or maybe the thing we strive for in being thankful in all areas of life, is being able to look beyond the current circumstance, no matter how good or bad it is or they are, and to be able to focus on God's promises in them. And the textbook reality for this is right here in these handful of verses we've read this morning. In this case, Paul is deeply thankful for the Corinthian people, but he tells us his ultimate hope is not in the, the Corinthian people, meaning he's thankful for their faith and who they are as people, but that is to a certain degree a circumstance. So his ultimate hope is not in that. Thankful for it, but not ultimately hopeful in that. What they do or do not do is what Paul, Paul is saying, like, that's not what I'm thankful for here. Or even their willingness to make the changes he was talking about to them. There's no guarantee that after he writes these letters, they're going to even apply this stuff. How can a guy be thankful with such a gaping black hole on the back end of what the outcome of this is going to be. It's pretty clear. His hope is completely in the power and promise of Jesus's life-changing grace working in them. So he's able to see the circumstance, but also he's able to see the supernatural presence beyond the circumstance. He sees the challenge in the Corinthian church, the circumstance, but he also is recognizing the God behind that circumstance working in it. And in verse 4, he literally says, I give thanks for God's people because of the evidence of, of the, of the life-changing grace that is within you. It's already confirmed the testimony, he says. We've already seen, as crazy as some of this stuff is, we've already seen God really working in your lives. This is the grace that enables all of us to live in a state of thankfulness, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. We are keenly aware of the circumstance, but we have to be mindfully present of the fact that God is present in that circumstance, whatever it is. And the particular one here Paul, Paul addresses, or he, he makes this connection about, is sort of how I want to begin to wrap up this morning. Paul makes this deep connection between having a thankful heart and the people of God's church family. In other words, he's saying we should be deeply grateful for, for, us, for us. To the left, to the right of you, to the people in cars and planes flying to see their families right now, to the folks who sit in our living rooms during community group. This is one of the things we should be incredibly thankful for, the family of God that Jesus has created. And this is for good reason. Community is one of our, our driving values at this church. It's also, I've, I've written a fair amount of it in that letter, and I, I want you to read that to see just some of the things we see going on, which are incredibly encouraging. And it's for good reason that Paul says we should be thankful for each other. Nowhere in Scripture do you find teachings that encourage or condone a loose or trite connection to the people of God. I speak about this often in here. Our faith has always been rooted in this deep and ancient truth of covenant or incredibly meaningful community. And I'll just share with you three incredibly general but pointedly obvious ways. They, they sort of, these umbrella ideas, shape the whole truth of community in Scripture. 
It is first and foremost most clearly seen in what we believe about how God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit care for each other. I've spoken on the Trinity here before. And the idea behind this is that the three of these folks, they live in this exemplary communion with each other that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all, all share with each other. And so right now, in us, in this room, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present with us. Like, I want you to think about this. They never miss a Sunday with us here, ever. They are always here with us. No matter where we are, they are with us. And the church global, no matter what it is doing at all times, they are present with the people of God. They never leave or forsake us because they never leave or forsake each other. In the Old Testament, we see God graciously. The Old Testament is not the story of one guy named Abraham doing a bunch of stuff. It's the story of God setting apart a, a small handful of people and creating a great nation known as Israel. And there, this particular people are set apart to reveal the goodness of God to the world in this amazing covenant community they have with each other and before God. It isn't a person, it's a people. And in the New Testament, we see this, this idea continued. It's a continuation. It's sort of the same idea with a different face. Many people wrongly see the New Testament as this sort of random pile of disconnected spiritual and moral teachings. But in actuality, they are a coherent set of teachings. In the same way the Old Testament predominantly speaks and shapes the people of God called Israel, in the New Testament, this is shaping how the, peop- how the nation of Israel sees and understands Jesus and how this new thing called the church sees and understands Jesus. A very coherent set of teachings, all designed to do a handful of things, to spur God's people to holiness, to help us become more like Christ, which we've talked about in a number of ways over these past weeks. And these, these teachings, all of them in the New Testament, are all written to groups, groups, plural, of people. It's Jesus and his disciples. It's the churches, not just even a single church like Philippi or Ephesus or a person at Philippi or Ephesus or Corinth. It's all going out into plurals. In other words, these singular truths about God are meant to shape a plural group of people. And that's why for many of us, the the church, we have really, really good stories of the church. Um, In this room, it is guaranteed. Some of you, when you think of the church past, present, you think of good things. The people of God are maybe what first drew you to Jesus, you were ministered to or or cared for. uh, And that's because a a, a church that is built on the truths of Christ's love and grace, the one Paul is talking about here, it's really meant to give the world a glimpse of what God's desire for true community is supposed to look like. And perhaps now more than ever, our world needs good examples of healthy community to be thankful for particularly healthy church communities. There's a lot of crazy stuff that's gone on over the past few years in churches. And we want to make sure that we're not replicating the Corinthian problem at this one. Because our church has a very specific role in our world, in our city. We've been put here by God to make a difference in our city. And it is absolutely true, it goes without saying, that our world regularly needs good examples of community. And the best way to show that is by showing the world through the way we treat each other, how Jesus sees the world. And I'll give you, an, this has nothing to do with the church, but I'll give you a good example of this because um, we're, we're less than a week away now from, anybody know what goes on on Friday of next week? Yeah, some of you are just like cackling like witches. You're like, 
you already have your plan laid out. Good uh, Black Friday. I almost said Good Friday. That was the most tragic conflation of an idea ever. Uh, so Good Friday and Black Friday. Now, nothing innately wrong with Black Friday, but I'll give you a good example of this. So it's, the ironies in our culture are amazing. They, I mean, I look for deals. You know, we, we save up money for things. I'm not against Black Friday, but what I'm saying is, is Black Friday every year really shows some crazy aspects of humanity. It goes from like, and Lord, we give thanks for this silverware, which I will cut the throat of from somebody tomorrow to get a discount at Macy's. That's what happens, like what people are thinking, right? So a, a couple of years ago, I have like a whole file on my computer of Black Friday stories to share when the opportunity comes up. I'll share with you my absolute favorite one. If you've ever done any like physical shopping on Black Friday, we really don't go out. But um, uh, one year, like four years ago, we went out not even to buy anything. My wife and my brother and sister-in-law, we, we went out after uh, our family had sort of kind of gone home, kids had gone to bed, and we just like grabbed a couple of hamburgers, and we were walking through stores to see what was going on, and it was like absolute mayhem, okay? And so uh, several years ago on a Black Friday, um, particularly when it comes to electronics, that seems to be the real drive of what people are trying to get, there was a deeply disturbing article about something that happened at a shopping event in a, in a large big box store in Los Angeles, okay? So on Thanksgiving evening, a woman in, in LA figured out an ingenious way to get the stuff she wanted. She developed an advantage over other shoppers that were trying to purchase uh, the same items that she was. If, if you Google like how to, how to uh, do Black Friday well, like there's whole blogs and articles connected to this. They'll tell you the thing you have to do is like you have to map out your plan. You, you, got, you got to go to Walmart first to get this first. So she developed one of these plans and it was ingenious, a surefire way um, to get the crowds thinking about something other than those great deals that, that she was trying to get before they sold out. And that's where the tension comes. There might only be 10 of a certain item. And so she decided, this is a true story, that wherever there were people competing, let's just say for the same item she wanted, maybe it was a big screen TV, when she was there and another person was there trying to get these last items, she would go into her pants and take out a bottle of pepper spray and mace those people. True story. I'm not making this up. Okay, You can look this up. And, and some of you are like, that was funny, and you've laughed, and then you're like, should I laugh at that? Like, two of you over here were like, that is a good idea. i got to get some pepper spray from Walmart when I get out of here. I don't know where you're at with this whole thing, right? Maybe you're thinking that's a, that's a good plan. But the, the funny thing about this is, like, you know, it's, it's humorous and not humorous, but the theory is a sound one if you want to think about her reasoning here. People, when faced with the choice of a big TV or breathing, are always going to choose the option of breathing. It's a solid scientific hypothesis. And so as these people were choking to death, she just gingerly put the item in her cart and continue shopping. And law enforcement said that there were approximately 20 people sprayed at the store. Okay, about, about 20. So think about that. She's good for two Christmases. And she was able to get all of her items and leave the store without being caught, at least at that moment, that it did eventually catch up with her, right? So thankfully, um, I, I also want to say something positive. Uh, Black Friday's evolved a lot. Like, a lot of stores are beginning to close now. They're trying to avoid this. But the bottom line is there's, there's still a ton of retailers that create these sort of frenzied, um, you know, we're talking about giving thanks, but Friday or Thursday night, this changes dramatically in our world. So while people are trying to make this more sane and maybe more beneficial, these are some decent examples. This is just one of, of places where our world is just mad, like capital, uh, capital N nuts. Like most of us, when we're thinking rationally, and I would even bet that that person on a rational day would have thought that that was a silly idea, but for whatever reason was able to to have community with other humans like that while they were shopping at a store, right? It's no secret that in the, the world can be a very dangerous place. 
uh, in a lot of ways. I gave a serious but humorous one today. And this is one of the reasons why we need to be thankful for the church. And we also need to know this is intentionally why one of the reasons God put the church in the world. It's no different than the way God desired Israel to light up the ancient Near East. The modern church, God wants, he wants us to light the world up. That's what part of our job is. And obviously, as we look to Christmas, this is the evidence of this for us. We have truly been set apart in these faith communities called churches to be with each other. And one of the greatest things about, if you think about the church, you know, in, in modern Western Christianity, the church, the concept of the idea of the church is sort of like an hour a week when you get around to it. That's almost exactly what textbook definitions of church are. I mean, functionally now from people. But I want you to think much more, more differently about this. The church, the way the people of God treat each other, truly meant to be a, a revelation of the relational expectation for how humanity should be treating each other. We are a foreshadowing of what it's supposed to be like when Jesus returns in very, very imperfect ways. He calls us to live out our lives in Christ with each other in ways that are exemplary to the world and become somewhat attractional to the world in, in healthy ways. We're supposed to be different than the Black Friday Mesa, Mesa neighbor crowd or whatever else is going on in the world that, that contributes to the kingdom of darkness and not to the kingdom of light. And we are supposed to spur each other on to live as faithful servants of Christ when we don't want to. And this is a deep connection that you will find to truly be connected to a church which is different than going to one. You can go to a church on occasion. I share regularly the, the current stat right now is that the average Christian attends worship two times out of every six weeks. That's American Christianity. I want you to think of the root of what took place on the cross and what Jesus was trying to do and what it looks like 2,000 years now for the bulk of American Christianity. For a lot of people, they have truly missed what it means to, to be thankful for the people of God because they've never tasted of the, the wonder of that. And so some Christians will never experience a Thanksgiving like the one we're talking about today because they are loosely connected, if at all connected, to the type of robust love we see Paul showing to a group of incredibly difficult people. I mean, we don't even have this stuff at our church, right? Uh, this, he is loving people who are incredibly hard to love. The references that he makes here, the description that he makes here, and the hope he has in God's work in their lives is truly, it's encouraging, it's exemplary. And that is what we're going to talk about in some of the weeks that follow. But for today, I simply want to leave you with this, because this is the week where we try to let Thanksgiving trump all of other thoughts. It's the first week I want to really challenge you, and you'll read about this in the letter. Culture is going to start speeding up. We're about to move into hyperdrive. But over these next eight weeks, what if one of the, the countercultural rhythms we pressed into was we, we slowed down a little bit? And we tried to, in a world that's going to accelerate, what if we tried to slow down and hear Jesus a little more clearly? What if we were more mindful of, of where our, our light opportunities are in the hyperdrive world that is around us? What if we truly gave thanks for Jesus and for each other and then asked him as we walk out of this room, like, what do my next eight, week looks like? eight weeks look like? Excuse me. And so if you've come to this place today looking for, for something to be thankful for, you, you don't need to look any further. If you are truly one of the people here saying, like, this is going to be a hard week for me because I don't know what I can be thankful for, you can begin by looking to the left and to the right of you. This is one of the things you can absolutely be thankful for. The other men and women who love Jesus and love you. And know that they are here because of Jesus' grace. The, the, the paradigm is no different. We are here as the people of the church at Restoration, 
And God looks at us, and we should be looking at each other with the same ultimate hope that Paul had as he looked to the people of Corinth, that God is present, working in our lives, loves, for us, loves and cares for us deeply, and has promised never to leave us in any of this. We are all truly in evidence of Jesus' grace, which is another thing to be deeply thankful for. And I'll give you another thing that we can be thankful for. This is a grace that has a past tense, present tense, and future tense application, meaning maybe you're here saying, like, I don't even know what, that, what you mean by that grace. That grace that some of us have experienced, that we, we've lived and pressed into, is immediately available to anybody who is here without it that wants it, who are willing to receive it. And so I, I challenge you this morning to think about this. If you are without the grace of Jesus, turn to him. If you don't know what it means like to believe the promise that God has started a work in your life that he promises to finish, because you don't exactly understand who Jesus is, don't walk out of here without asking that question. If you are here today and you have something to be deeply thankful for, give thanks for that. But also give thanks for your church family. And I'll tell you, give thanks for all, above all else, for the person of Jesus who's enabled us to be thankful in these areas and who's given us a grace that, that is unassailable in the world, no matter what is going on. It's present for us now. It is available to us in the immediate, the good and the bad, and for the rest of our lives. And so as you leave this place, ask yourself, what will you do with the grace Jesus has shown you? Will it let you uh, become a person who's defined by thanksgiving? Or will you struggle or suffer and maybe be a little less thankful this week than Jesus has planned for your heart? I pray you'll choose option A, and I want you to know that we're here to support you. If option A is, if option a is the thing you desire but you just can't get your heart around, let the people of God exhort you to encouragement in a way that helps you to understand and know, grow in the deep grace that we've talked about today in more true and profound ways.